Hello everyone, this is Isabel Cortez, and welcome to another episode of Scary Stories for the Soul. I curse you. I curse you all to an eternity of torment and grief. I curse your mother and your father, your children, the ones here and the ones that will come. I curse your lands and your home, and I hope that you never feel comfortable in your most sacred places. I curse your livelihood and your mind, and I hope that you can never find the concentration again to do the things that you love to do. I curse you. No, I'm just kidding. I don't actually curse you. On the other hand, I wish you all the best of luck in love and in life. But that was scary, wasn't it? The idea that a complete stranger would place something so ominous and frightening on your head? Even if you don't believe in curses, the idea that someone would harbor such resentment towards you that they would put something like that into the universe is terrifying. And curses are such powerful things that they don't even have to be put on people. They can be put on anything. On September 19, 1692, Giles Corey was crushed to death in Salem, Massachusetts after refusing to admit his status as a witch. The 81-year-old refused to speak or even acknowledge the accusations lobbied against him. It was said that the only words he spoke throughout the ordeal were more weight after heavy sewn slabs were placed upon his chest, each one increasing in weight. He did say one other thing though. Upon his dying breath, he looked over at Sheriff George Corwin and said, damn you, I curse you and Salem. Four years after Corey's death, Sheriff Corwin suddenly died of a heart attack at 30 years old. Local legend suggests that in cursing Sheriff Corwin, Giles Corey cursed every man to take the position of sheriff in Salem, Massachusetts. And that curse has survived. In 1978, Sheriff Robert E. Cahill was forced into an early retirement after suffering a stroke, a heart attack, and contracting a rare blood condition all in the same year. Such a trifecta of illnesses was fairly uncommon for a man of his age, and so Cahill decided to do some research on the sheriff position his and his predecessors. He discovered that the sheriff before him also contracted a blood disease while in office and was forced to retire early, as well as his father before him who had been sheriff. The elder man had died from a heart attack while sheriff. The sheriff before that had also suffered heart problems, and the two before that had gotten themselves into such awful legal troubles that they were forced to leave the police force altogether. Many lifelong Salem residents believed that the curse was officially broken in 1991 when the sheriff's office was moved from Salem itself to a new prison in Middleton, 17 minutes away. Curses are powerful things, and no one has seen their fair share of curses, like Hollywood. Some of the most notable horror movies to come out of Hollywood have been the victims of curses and malicious forces. For example, in 1968, the controversial horror film Rosemary's Baby was released. While the movie dealt with the fictitious birth of Satan's child, Behind the scenes, some very real horrors were occurring. Author Ira Levin inadvertently cursed the movie himself when he wrote his famous novel in June of 1966, or 666. A year later, in 1967, the movie became a worldwide success, but darkness soon came upon the people involved. The first to be victim of the curse was musical composer for the film, Christoph Komeda. In 1968, after roughhousing at a party, 
the 37-year-old fell from a rocky slope and ended up in a four-month coma. This accident mimics that of Rosemary's friend Terry Gionofrio in the film Rosemary's Baby, who was suspicious of Rosemary's new friends. Just like Gionofrio, Komeda never regained consciousness and died the following year. Next was producer William Castle, who repeatedly received threatening letters throughout filming. One reading, Bastard, believer of witchcraft, worshiper at the shrine of Satanism. My prediction is you will slowly rot during a long and painful illness, which you have brought upon yourself. Castle became increasingly paranoid and became impossible to work with. In 1969, he was hospitalized with severe kidney stones, which made him hallucinate scenes from the movie. He would shout to the nurses, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop the knife! When he recovered, he never made another Hollywood hit again. Then, there was director Roman Polanski. Polanski's girlfriend and soon-to-be wife Sharon Tate had auditioned for the role of Rosemary Woodhouse and was petitioning hard for it. Paramount eventually went with Mia Farrow, but Tate was a constant presence on the set and even appeared in an uncredited role during the young people-only party scene. The material of Rosemary's Baby opened Tate's eyes to the world of the occult, which she quickly became interested in. On August 8, 1969, Tate and her unborn son were brutally murdered along with coffee heiress Abigail Folger, Polish writer Wojciech Frykowski, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, and property caretaker Stephen Parent. Four members of the notorious Manson family, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Linda Kasabian, and lookout Charles Tex Watson committed the horrifying murders that rocked Hollywood. Many would come to believe that Polanski's involvement in the cursed film is what led to Tate's murder, and Polanski himself even believed, mentioning in his autobiography that a month before the murder, he looked at his pregnant wife and thought, you will never see her again. Sharon Tate and the others were murdered while Rosemary's Baby was still showing in theaters nationwide. And following the theme of the birth of the devil's son, 1976's The Omen is also reportedly on the list of Hollywood's most cursed horror movies. When director Richard Donner became attached to the film, many opponents believed that becoming attached to such a film would make the film's cast and crew more susceptible to attacks from the other world. And sure enough, mysterious things began to happen. Lead actor Gregory Peck and screenwriter David Seltzer were on a flight to Rome when their plane was struck by lightning. At the same time, in Rome, producer Harry Bernhard was actually struck by lightning. David Donner was also involved in numerous car accidents while filming as well as other crew members, and his hotel was bombed by the IRA. Gregory Peck was reportedly meant to board a flight to Israel once, one of the many locations used while filming, but missed the flight at the last minute. The plane ended up crashing and leaving no survivors. His son Jonathan Peck also committed suicide a few months before filming officially began, but after his father had already made his involvement public. One of the most famous incidents involved special effects director John Richardson and special effects sculptor Liz Moore. The pair were driving around the Netherlands after the Omen had finished filming and working on a film entitled A Bridge Too Far when they were involved in a car accident that resulted in the decapitation of Moore. The incident occurred on Friday the 13th, 1976, and resembles one of the most gruesome death scenes in the movie, where photographer Keith Jennings is decapitated by a sheet of glass. John Richardson himself orchestrated the death scene in the film. Other injuries included animal handlers being attacked during the baboon scene. In the film, Damien and his mother Catherine are driving through the baboon reserve in a zoo when the baboons, sensing Damien's evil, become erratic. 
they grow increasingly violent and begin attacking the car. According to a few incident reports, the baboons had actually lost control, and many animal handlers, including actress Lee Remick, who played Catherine Thorne, were injured by the primates in an attempt to get control of the situation. And unsurprisingly, 1973's The Exorcist is also on various lists of cursed horror movies. The novel written by William Peter Blatty was based on the real-life exorcism of a 14-year-old schoolboy which supposedly occurred in a hospital room on the grounds of Georgetown University. Because the novel and subsequent film were based on a real-life exorcism, many believe the demonic forces attached themselves to the project and cursed those who were involved in it. And sure enough, horrible things did begin to happen. Soon after filming commenced, the entire set burned down, with the exception of Reagan McNeil's room. The fire caused production to be stalled by at least six weeks and for a local priest to be called to bless the set. But after the six weeks were up, production began again in full swing. That's when the deaths began. First and foremost, Jack McGrowan, who played fictional director Burke Dennings, died from complications of influenza before the film was released in 1973. In February of the same year, Basilica Maliaros, the woman who played Father Karras' mother, died as well. A few years later, in 1976, Lee J. Cobb, who played Lieutenant William Kinderman, died of a heart attack at 64 years old. Mercedes McCambridge, the actress who voiced the demon Pazuzu inhabiting young Reagan, was also touched by the curse. McCambridge reportedly smoked and drank as regularly as possible to achieve the infamous demon voice heard on film, and while she originally agreed to go unaccredited, she later took the studio to court and repeatedly slandered 15-year-old Linda Blair. In 1987, John Lawrence Markle, McCambridge's son, murdered his wife and two daughters before committing suicide in Little Rock, Arkansas. Police found a suicide note and a bloody Halloween mask, which they believe Markle had worn while shooting his two daughters. In the suicide note addressed to his mother, Markle wrote, Is this clear to you? That you have hurt every member of my family? That you have hurt me? That I stood by you under some really adverse conditions and that you have done nothing but manipulate me for your purpose? I have broken man's law. You have not. I have not broken God's law. You have. There's nothing more to say. It seems as though Markle was undergoing an investigation at work and was under serious financial constraints, which McCambridge refused to help him with. He reportedly asked her for money several times to keep his family afloat, and she rejected him each time. McCabridge, in turn, received more than half of her son's 890,000 estate upon his death. Finally, there was the man who became a murderer soon after being involved in the film. Paul Bateson was a radiographer who appeared in the radiology scene in The Exorcist. Bateson was working as a neurological radiological technician at the New York University Medical Center when film director William Friedkin viewed a cerebral angiography being performed. Wanting the medical scenes to be as authentic as possible, Friedkin featured many of the university's own medical staff in the angiography scene, including Bateson. In 1977, four years after the film was released, Bateson murdered film critic Addison Verrill in Verrill's New York apartment. Bateson admitted to going on a date with Verrill and ending the night at the film critic's apartment, where they did heavy drugs and drank. At one point, according to Bateson, something inexplicable came over him and he attacked Verrill with a frying pan, crushing his skull and rendering him unconscious. He then stabbed Verrill in the heart with a kitchen knife, killing him. Bateson soon confessed to the murder and alluded to killing at least six other gay men in the New York area. 
he supposedly mutilated and dismembered these victims before wrapping their bodies in plastic bags and dumping them in the Hudson River. Since no evidence was ever found of these other murders, Bateson was never charged for them. In 1979, he was convicted for the murder of Allison Verrill and was sentenced to death in prison with a minimum of 20 years. He would later say that he started The Exorcist as a form of revenge towards his overbearing father who forbade him from watching television or movies. And how can we talk about cursed movies without mentioning Poltergeist? The 1982 horror movie, based on the abduction of a young girl by evil spirits, is widely regarded as the most haunted horror movie in Hollywood history. Many believe that the curse originated from the fact that real human skeletons were used in the scene where Diane Freeling and her daughter Dana were trapped in the pool. The studio did the math and realized that plastic skeletons would be too expensive to buy in the quantity that they needed, so they reached out to medical facilities around the country for real ones donated for science. The spirits were apparently unhappy with the way that their earthly remains were being used, and thus began to wreak havoc on the movie set. Majority of the curse theories stem from the multiple deaths that happened amongst the film's cast. Dominic Dunn, who played teenage daughter Dana Freeling, was murdered by her boyfriend John Sweeney shortly after the movie premiered. He lured her out of her Hollywood home where he violently choked her until she fell unconscious. Her body was found in her driveway, and while they did rush her to the hospital, she fell in a coma and was declared brain dead soon after. Her family had to make the painful decision to remove her from life support and let her die peacefully. John Sweeney was sentenced to six and a half years in prison for the assault, but only served three. Julian Beck, the actor who portrayed the evil preacher Kane in the second installment of the film, died of stomach cancer soon after the sequel finished filming. The diagnosis apparently came out of the blue and he quickly succumbed to it. Will Sampson, the actor who played Taylor in the same film, died shortly after as well. He was undergoing heart-lung transplant and never got off the surgical table. It is said that Sampson, having been a real-life medicine man, could sense that something was off around the set. He insisted on performing an exorcism one night after shooting had wrapped, and from that night on became a target for whatever spirits were haunting the production. And then there is the tragic death of Heather O'Rourke, the young actress who played Carol Ann in all three Poltergeist films. O'Rourke had been misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease and was receiving treatment for some time. When she began to suffer from intense stomach pains, her mother took her to a hospital where they found out that she was actually suffering from congenital stenosis of the intestines. Doctors tried to repair an acute bowel obstruction, but by that time, she was too far gone and she died on the surgical table. On February 1st, 1988, she was pronounced dead at 12 years old. The last film had to actually be finished by a body double since she had not finished filming her scenes. Apart from the several deaths that occurred, lights would turn off and on on their own, objects would move and be found in random places, and crew would report seeing shadow people on set. The list of horror films afflicted with curses or strange happenings is a long one. While filming 2013's The Conjuring, actress Vera Farmiga saw strange claw marks on her computer screen, while director James Wan's dog would growl at invisible figures in dark corners throughout the movie set. When 2005's The Exorcism of Emily Rose was under production, star Jennifer Carpenter was often awoken in the middle of the night by her radio playing the same song, Alive, by Pearl Jam. Actress Laura Linney's television would also come on at random. When the remake of 2005's The Amityville Horror Remake began filming, Melissa George, the actress who portrayed Kathy Lutz, was consistently left with bruises and scratch marks. She would wake up at 3 a.m. for no reason and suffered extreme night terrors. When the original 1979 film was made, actor Josh Brolin, 
repeatedly didn't believe in the paranormal activity associated with the DeFeo home and the murders that took place there. That is until he began experiencing things of his own once he took the part of George Lutz. Can it be said that horror movies, because they deal with a specific subject matter, are more likely to be susceptible to paranormal attacks? Do they attract spirits and demons and ghosty things more due to the fact that they actively call on them with every day of filming? It's impossible to say exactly how or why these things happen, but it's also impossible to deny that these things are worthy of a second look through the lens of the supernatural. The story that you're about to hear is one of two filmmakers who would do anything to make a great horror movie. They soon discover that in crossing a few lines to get an authentic movie, they have opened the door to a power so frightening that the truth is scarier than fiction. Brian and Nicholas had always known that they wanted to be filmmakers. The duo became best friends in the fifth grade after Nicholas had written a horror movie about a haunted desk and Brian had stolen his father's camera to try and begin filming it. From then on, they were inseparable, attending the same film college and beginning their careers as horror movie duos. Nicholas was the writer and Brian was the director, and they genuinely thought that they were on the verge of creating something great. You see, Brian loved his great Aunt Margaret's house in the Hollywood Hills. His Aunt Margaret never really liked children, but she always made an exception for Brian, who she believed to be mature for his age. Whenever he visited her large colonial home, he had free range of the entire estate, apart from one room on the second floor that he always saw remained locked for some reason. He repeatedly asked his Aunt Margaret what was in the room, and she would always reply, nothing of interest to you. For years, Brian tried to break into that room or trick his aunt into telling him what was inside, and for years, nothing worked. And then one day, when Brian was 25 and finishing up film school, his great-aunt Margaret died and left him the house in her will. The first thing that Brian did when he got those keys was open that door on the second floor. Much to Brian's disappointment, there was nothing scary or mysterious in the room. Lining the walls and shelves and bookcases were collectible figurines, books, antiques, and jewelry. It looked like the kind of room where you stored all your most precious and valuable belongings to ensure that no snot-nosed kid would break them or try to steal them. There was, however, a necklace that Brian found wrapped in silk and locked away in an ornately carved wooden box. When he forced the box open and found the necklace, a note came tumbling out that read, Dear Brian, I knew that the moment you were able to enter this room, you would. I don't blame you. All the things in this room are worth a good chunk of change, and so I ask that whatever you do not sell to pay off your numerous school debts, you keep in this room and maintain them. This necklace once belonged to my own Aunt Alice, who gifted it to me against my will. She was a hateful woman, and we did not get along. I firmly believe that she left it to me as a means to continue to torture me from beyond the grave. You have two options. Sell it, knowing full well that whoever buys it will inherit her hateful curse, or keep it locked away as I have to ensure that it will not hurt others. The choice is yours, as I am no longer alive to tell you what to do. I love you, sweet boy. I will see you again when your time comes, and not a moment earlier. Your Aunt Margaret Brian immediately showed Nicholas. It's got the makings of a good horror movie, he proudly proclaimed. A great horror movie, Nicholas agreed. He quickly went to work writing the script, all while keeping the necklace close at hand. He didn't know what had taken over him, but he was writing faster than he ever had before. It was as if the movie wanted, no, needed to be written, and Nicholas was the only person who could write it. After every new page was written, Brian would read over them and his faith in their project would be solidified. They only had one rule. Neither of them was to ever wear the necklace. 
They weren't superstitious people by nature, but Brian had always trusted his Aunt Margaret, and if she said that the necklace was bad, then the necklace was bad. They could keep it close, but it would never touch their skin. Once the script was finished, the next thing they needed was to find a location. They went searching throughout all of Los Angeles to find their dream haunted house, but nothing seemed to fit the bill. Finally, Brian suggested that they use his Aunt Margaret's house. I mean, why not? It's loosely based on her story and the story of her family. What better way to truly get that authentic horror feel than by shooting in the house where it all began? Nicholas didn't like the idea. He loved it. The movie was loosely based on Aunt Margaret's great-aunt Alice, the original owner of the necklace. Nicholas modeled his script after her life and the strange happenings that occurred after she died. Aunt Alice had lived a privileged life. She had been born into wealth, the only child of an important Beverly Hills banker and a southern debutante who had flocked to California. They had given her everything and anything. All she needed to do was ask. When she turned 22, she married someone even wealthier a man named Samuel who was fresh off of an inheritance and a new banking job. The marriage was a power move. He needed an in with the old money crowd, and she needed to be able to bring someone impressive on her arm to functions and charity events. They had never had any children, and had slowly isolated themselves from their families, having made friends in entirely different tax brackets than even their own rich clan. By the time that Brian's Aunt Margaret was born, Alice was a widower. She had always hated children, but for some reason had zeroed in on Margaret. Margaret's mother always believed that it was because she resembled Alice at a very young age. Above all else, Alice was a vain woman. She had spent a fortune on creams, lotions, tonics, and then as a last resort, plastic surgery to regain the youthful beauty that had made her such a cash in her younger years. When none of it worked, Alice had decided to age with dignity. Bitter, bitter dignity. She was horrible to Margaret. She belittled her, berated her, and pinched her every chance she got. Sometimes, she would pass by Margaret on the staircase and hit her in the shins with her cane. When Alice's condition began to deteriorate, she spent a lot of time looking at Margaret. She would stare at her for hours in her wheelchair, unmoving, without blinking, it was unnerving, but Margaret didn't want to be rude, so she never said anything. One night, Margaret hosted a get-together for what would have been her mother's 80th birthday. Seeing as how she was Alice's cousin, Margaret felt obligated to invite her Aunt Alice. The party was in full swing, and Margaret was playing the perfect hostess when she noticed Alice in her wheelchair, staring at her from the living room. The elder woman raised a finger and beckoned Margaret. The blood rushed out of Margaret's body and she felt as though her ears were blocked. The music sounded muffled. The people around her seemed to move in slow motion. Margaret didn't feel her feet move, but she knew that she was moving. It was almost as if she was out of control of her body. Her knees buckled in front of Alice, and the woman took her hands and cupped them with hers. Something for you, Alice said, and dropped a necklace into Margaret's hands. It was solid gold, with an upside-down triangle and an X dropped in the middle in a large circle. The engraving made Margaret uncomfortable, but she didn't know why. I will always be with you, Alice then said. It was a sentiment often passed around from one loved one to another, but this sounded more like a threat. Alice wanted to make sure that Margaret knew she would never be rid of her. And the next day, Alice died. Out of respect for the dead, Margaret wore the necklace as much as she could, but strange things kept happening. The first night she wore it, the day of the funeral, she was walking up the stairs to her room when she felt a kick to the back of the knee. 
She lost her balance and went tumbling down, resulting in a brutal knot on her head. The day after, she was on the curb waiting to cross the street when she felt a hand placed firmly between her shoulder blades. She turned around to see who was touching her, but before she could get a good look, the phantom hand pushed her and she fell onto the street. A car nearly missed her but took off her shoe. For days, things like these would happen. Car wrecks, things crashing down, purses stolen, hair being pulled. It was becoming so violent that Margaret gifted the necklace to an acquaintance as a last resort, but the woman gave it back after two days, calling her on the phone with tears in her eyes, saying that the necklace had burned her and that her daughter had been seeing strange figures around the house. She tried one more time to give it away, loaning it to her best friend's daughter for a debutante ball that she was invited to. The night of the ball, the daughter was getting ready in her bathroom when she noticed her reflection in the mirror was lagging. It moved a fraction of a second slower than she did. Then, the feature started to shift and morph, taking on a new face altogether. Staring back at her was an old woman with her hair piled high on her head, her eyes milky white and a beauty mark on her left cheek. The girl screamed and drove her fist through the mirror, sending glass flying everywhere. Her parents had to drive her to the hospital and she received over 30 stitches. Alice knew that she had seen Aunt Alice. As a last resort, Margaret took the necklace to a psychic who said that Alice had placed a curse on the necklace before she died. But why? Margaret had asked with confused tears running down her face. The psychic began to tremble then, her eyes rolling to the back of her head and her neck rotated in an awkward, painful angle. Her hands went rigid in the shape of claws and her mouth opened wide and then turned down into an awful sneer. You insolent tramp, the psychic said in a voice that didn't belong to her. You are nothing and you deserve nothing. Your beauty will fade. The people close to you will leave the moment you have anything left to give. You think you're so beautiful and wonderful and important, but you aren't. I have always seen you for what you are, an insignificant trollop. I hate you. I will never leave you. I will follow you until you are old and frail and unable to move or recognize yourself in the mirror. The psychic quickly snapped out of her spell. Margaret begged for her to fix it, to free her of the curse, but the psychic told her that nothing could be done. The hatred that lived within the gold of the trinket was too strong. Giving it away would do nothing, and destroying it would only destroy the vessel that contained the evil. Hide it, she was told. Hide it away and never speak of it again. The activity will continue, but it will be muted. It will not be as strong, and that is going to frustrate her, so you must protect yourself, and then keep this safe. So for years, Margaret kept the necklace a secret, only telling those she had to, to ensure that the necklace would be taken care of in her passing. And Nicholas wrote his script just like this. The movie would follow Margaret in her attempt to rid herself of the evil of the necklace and the hellish specter that was her Aunt Alice. Brian was beside himself with excitement. They hired an actress who resembled a young Margaret and then another who resembled a young Alice. They were able to find pictures of the latter in old family albums to help with the authenticity. Within days, they had set up their movie set in Aunt Margaret's house and they were ready to film. Brian had a great idea for the first day of filming. What if we tell the crew that the house is haunted? Is it? Nicholas asked, looking around. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I always thought it was. And I know my Aunt Margaret would sage the house every week, so maybe she thought it was too. It would definitely help everyone get into character. So during the first cast meeting, the dynamic duo casually dropped the bomb that the house they were working in was his real Aunt Margaret's house, and that it was haunted. By not only Margaret herself, but also by mean Aunt Alice. 
the air in the room shifted and they could tell that they got their desired effect. The only problem that they were running into was the necklace. It was an integral part of the storyline and so it obviously had to be in the film. But not wanting to disrespect Aunt Margaret's wishes, they didn't want to have the Margaret actress actually wear it. The issue was that the necklace was an antique and they couldn't find anything that looked like it anywhere. Sure, they could get another necklace, but they were all about authenticity. They also didn't want to have to pay big money that they did not have to have a replica be made. In the end, they decided to get the necklace blessed and use it anyway. Aunt Margaret had always been a big believer in Brian's dreams, and he thought that she would have been okay with it. A little angry, but ultimately okay. The first day of filming, they didn't have much time. So they went to a local church, dunked the necklace in holy water, said a quick prayer, and went off to shoot their movie. Day one was a disaster, to say the least. The movie was supposed to open up with the story of Alice and her early years as a beautiful debutante. They placed the necklace around the actress's neck and called action. She was okay for a moment, but then began to fidget. Then the fidgeting turned into scratching. Cut! Nicholas shouted. What is going on, Carrie? Brian asked. This thing is burning my neck! She replied, upset and annoyed. The head of wardrobe, a woman named Deborah, ran over to Carrie and lifted her hair. Jesus! Deborah cried out. Carrie's neck was bright red and covered in small boils. It was as if the necklace had branded her. Get this fucking thing off of me, she cried out. It's burning my neck! Deborah quickly undid the clasp and dropped the necklace on a side coffee table. They dashed Carrie to the emergency room and they weren't able to finish filming her scenes. Next, the crew was filming the scene where Margaret puts on the necklace for the first time. The actress, a talented young woman named Laurel, was in full character. The cameras were rolling and she put on the necklace. The moment the clasp closed shut, every light in the room blew out at the same time. Laurel screamed as light bulb shards flew across the room, cutting a few crew members and damaging equipment. Filming had to be stopped as they took an estimate of the damage and what exactly had caused it. A few days later, Brian took his camera around the house with the intention of shooting B-roll for the film. As he was walking through Aunt Margaret's antique room, he heard the sound of creaking coming from the corner. He turned and noticed a dark wood rocking chair facing a corner, moving, but only slightly. He brushed it off, assuming he had rubbed against it on his way around the room and went back to filming. But then he heard the sound again, and when he turned, the chair was rocking on its own. The camera began to short circuit as the rocking intensified, and he was afraid that it would lose power, but then suddenly, the chair stopped. Something happened to the air in the room. The atmosphere thickened, and Brian had the intense urge to run away, but he stood his ground. With one swift motion, the chair spun around to face him and began to rock again, more violently this time, with the legs almost completely leaving the floor. Brian dropped the camera and slowly started to back out of the room, making sure to keep his eyes on the chair. When he finally made it into the hallway, he reached a shaking hand for the doorknob, but before he got the chance, the door slammed shut on its own. Did you get it on film? Nicholas had asked excitedly. I don't know, Brian exclaimed back. He was getting frustrated with his friend's nonchalant attitude about the whole experience. It's all so cool until it happens to you. I'm not going back in there. If you want the footage, you're going to have to go and get it yourself. Nicholas did eventually go and get the camera that same day. He found it lying on the ground where he assumed Brian had dropped it, but before he could pick it up, his ears picked up an odd sound. First, it sounded like a dog whimpering, low and frail, but high-pitched enough to register. He couldn't pinpoint exactly where it was coming from, 
because it sounded like it was coming from everywhere. He knew that there was no way that an animal could have gotten into the house, so he knew that he wasn't hearing what he was hearing. Then, the growling intensified. It was as if the animal was being hurt by someone. Or something. Is someone in here? Nicholas asked impulsively. The sound quickly changed from a loud growl and whimper to a laugh. The kind of laugh that one produces when they are laughing at someone and not with someone. He quickly bent down and picked up the camera, pointing it at every inch of the room, hoping to record the sound, but then it stopped. Nicholas felt a hot hand on his chest, so hot that it felt like it was going to burn right through his shirt. Then he was pushed out of the room, landing on his behind in the hallway, his head hitting the staircase banister. The following week, one of the cameramen was scratched while filming a scene. It happened right in the middle of shooting and he doubled over in pain, almost dropping the camera on himself. When they inspected his back, they found five scratches going down as if someone had taken their long nails and raked them down his back. Then, their sound producer, an old classmate named Julia, had gotten into a car accident while on her way to the house. According to her, she had lost control of her car, the steering wheel spinning out of control and crashing into a tree. Nicholas and Brian knew that they had to do something when Laurel told them about an incident in her own home. She had come back from filming one night and had put on a kettle for some tea. She was absentmindedly scrolling on her phone when she caught a shadow out of the corner of her eye. It looked like nothing at first, just a shadow being cast in the corner of her living room, but then it started to shift. Soon, she could see the outline of a head, a slender neck, narrow shoulders, and a slim figure. And then it became more detailed. There was a tall hairdo sitting atop of a head, the ruffles of a high-collared dress, long, spindly fingers coming from delicate hands, and a cane. A whole person was in the shadows of Laurel's home. Laurel could hear the tea kettle whistling, but she didn't dare move. The shadow woman did move, though, she took a turn around the room, not quite materializing, but moving as if made of smoke. She made her way from hallway to hallway, and then halfway around the room, until she was facing Laurel. "'Who are you?' Laurel asked. The shadow did not respond, but banged its cane against the ground three times. She could hear the banging more in her head than anything else each time it hit the ground. What do you want? She called out. The kettle was spurting hot water and she could smell smoke in the air. The shadow banged its cane down again. Leave me alone! Laurel screamed out and the shadow took three quick steps, closing the gap between them with impossible speed. All of a sudden, she was face to face with two yellow eyes with slits for pupils looking directly at her. It reached a bony hand over and squeezed her face. Laurel could feel fingernails digging into her cheeks and she screamed. She screamed so loud that she was sure her entire apartment complex could hear her. She thrashed around, kicking and clawing to release herself from the thing's tight grip and then as quickly as it had come, it was gone and she was left standing by herself in her apartment. She quickly shut off the kettle before she burned the place down and then slumped down on the ground and cried. It's Margaret, Laurel said during a cast meeting the next morning. You two dipshits did the one thing she told you not to do and now she's pissed. No, Aunt Margaret never used a cane. But Alice did, Nicholas interjected. Well, great, we get the pissed off hag instead of the one who actually liked Brian, Carrie shouted. Shh. Laurel said with a finger over her lips. She can obviously hear you. Carrie rolled her eyes but looked around the room nervously. Well then, what's the plan? One of the wardrobe people asked. 
I signed on to help you with a movie, not to get terrorized by a creepy ghost. Yeah, uh, I'm not working until you guys get this shit under control, the cameraman said. Brian and Nicholas looked around the room and realized that everyone was in agreement. Come on, guys, Brian said. We haven't really shot anything. We owe it to ourselves to push through this. We don't owe you squat, Laurel said, walking up to the pair. Fix this mess and then call us. And with that, the crew filed out of the house, leaving Nicholas and Brian alone in the living room. What now? Brian asked. We get the necklace blessed, Nicholas said. Then the house. Then the equipment. Fuck it, let's get everything blessed. We'll get blessed. No, dude, we need to get to the root of the problem. We need to talk to whatever it is that's haunting us. Now we're haunted, Brian replied. Nicholas rolled his eyes at his friend, but then pulled out his phone and texted his cousin Mary to head over. Mary was a bit of a psychic. Everyone in the family knew it. She didn't like being able to see things and hear things and commune with the things in the other world, but it was a gift that she had had since she was a child. Mary made it to the house within 20 minutes and immediately felt nauseous. This place reeks, she said. I don't smell anything, Brian said, sniffing around. You wouldn't, she replied. It's like rotting meat and eggs. Nicholas and Brian waited in the living room while Mary took a tour around the house. She spent some time in each room before coming back down with a worried look on her face. I hate to tell you this, guys, but this movie is over. The men looked over at her incredulously. What? They asked in unison. There is a woman here, and she is mad. I can feel her presence in every inch of this house. It's weak. It's as if she just got here. But she's slowly taking over, and the longer you work on this movie, the stronger she's going to get. We can't just shut down, Nicholas said angrily. Do you have any idea how much work went into this project? Brian chimed in. The two men started talking over each other, shouting about the movie and the money that they had invested. Mary's head began to feel fuzzy. She was losing her bearings. Nicholas and Brian looked over just as her eyes rolled to the back of her head. Her back hunched only slightly, making her look smaller. Enough! She cried out in a voice that wasn't hers. The men stood frozen in stunned silence. Mary's features were no longer her own. It was as if a thinly veiled mask had fallen over her face. What have you done? The once Mary said. Aunt Margaret? Brian asked. Do you think I want to be here right now? She asked. How could you be so reckless? I warned you about that woman, and now look at what you've done. You two are in danger. You have to stop this. The lights in the house began to flicker. The wide-eyed Mary looked around the room and spoke in a whisper. She is strong, so full of hate. She is going to destroy you. You have to stop this. Put the necklace back where you found it. The box. It's blessed. The markings on it are to contain the evil. Put it back and leave. Brian and Nicholas looked at each other in disbelief. And then, as if to make their minds up for them, the house began to shake. Several picture frames fell off the wall and the windows rattled. The men tried to hold on to something to stabilize themselves, but everything was moving. Do it, Mary said in Margaret's voice. Nicholas scrambled to grab the necklace, which was sitting in a plastic shot glass on the kitchen table. Wait, Brian said as they made their way up upstairs. You came back. Does that mean I can talk to you again? Mary's mouth drew up into a small smile. No, you silly boy. I miss you, but I only came to help you and your thick skulled friend. I will see you when you get here, and not a minute before. And with that, Mary's eyes rolled back to their proper place and her back straightened and she came back into herself. Didn't you hear her? She cried out. Go put that thing back and let's go. We can't, Brian said. If that really is Alice, she hasn't let us go into that room in days. Well, duh, the box is in there, 
She knows that if you put it back, she's done for. We'll just have to run in and do it quickly. The trio ran up the stairs. The banister shook and the stairs felt as if they were melting, but they ran up nonetheless. Mary flung the door open and in the middle of the room stood Alice, tall and rail thin, holding onto her cane. Her features looked sunken in and her eyes were a pale shade of gray. Her black high collar dress hung loosely on her frame and she opened her mouth and let out a piercing scream, unhinging her jaw like a snake. Stay back! Mary said, putting herself between the spirit and Brian, who had rushed over to grab the wooden box. The ghost Alice tried to grab at Mary, but for some reason, when her hand made contact with her skin, the spirit recoiled backwards, as if in pain. The ghost dematerialized, and Brian took the opportunity to snatch the box up and put it in his pocket. The trio ran out of the room, down the stairs, and out of the house. Right before Alice was able to grab them, Brian shut the door and slammed it right in her face. Nicholas grabbed the shot glass that he had put in his jacket pocket, and Brian slowly slid the necklace back into its rightful home. Mary looked at the two of them. I hope you two dingleberries learned your lesson. Don't go back in there for at least another couple days, she said, motioning behind her to the house. I'd give it like a week, and then put the box back where you found it. After a week, that's exactly what they did, making sure to lock the door behind them, just like how Aunt Margaret had had it. Nicholas did, however, take a picture of the necklace before it was put away for good. He was working on a new script, and he was going to need a picture if he was going to get a decent replica made. Whether you believe in curses or not, some things are hard to explain with rational thought. Some things are inexplicable and beyond coincidence. What then is there to do but look into the realm of superstition and lore to try and come up with an explanation? Is it a coincidence that the road where Liz Moore was decapitated after filming The Omen was parallel to a sign reading Omen, 66.6 kilometers? Is it a coincidence that Mercedes McCambridge, after taking on the task of voicing a powerful and ancient demon in The Exorcist, would be accused of breaking God's law in a suicide note? Coincidence is one thing, but denial is another. Thank you for taking this haunted journey with me today. The time is finally here, and Halloween is but a few short hours away, and we are gearing up for our special Halloween episode. Tune in this Sunday, October 31st, All Hallows Eve, as we talk about the haunted history of Halloween, from its Celtic origins to how they translate into our current traditions. And you'll hear the story of a girl who got a much more unique Halloween that she asked for. Don't forget that if you want to hear more myths, legends, and scary stories, rate, review, and subscribe on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. Until next time.